So I was reading uh, recently the latest uh, supercomputer, the most powerful computer in the world. <coughs> it's in China. And it can perform 93 quadrillion calculations a second. And none of us know what a quadrillion is anyway, but it's a lot. Uh, but even one day, that could be overloaded. It, won't, it will never be big enough. Just as our own small computers or phones uh, run out of memory or storage space or begin to slow down when you've got too much stored on them. And the mind, our brains, uh, although better than any uh, known computer, um, can also make us feel overloaded, too much going on. We begin to get forgetful, and when we become stressed, <coughs> and we feel we just can't absorb any more, leave me alone. And it is the heart that deeper, more mysterious center of consciousness, which is in no way comparable to a computer, but it's the heart that has no limit to what it can know and learn, and it grows and expands the more it loves, the more we use it, or the more it opens to reality, the greater it becomes. And that's what we mean by the gift of eternal life. Eternal life sounds like, you know, being tied up to life support um, machinery, you know, for the, for, for, for the, for the foreseeable future uh, and into the beyond uh, without much quality of life or ultimately getting a little boring after two or three quadrillion eras. But I don't think that's really what eternal life means, just an increased capacity or longevity. Uh, it's about this experience of our being unfillable, that we will always expand we can always be more. And that, I think, is why meditation begins to change our understanding, our experience of life from day one. It takes us time, and I'd like to speak about silence and time a little bit this morning. It takes us time to learn what that experience means. If you introduce meditation to a secular group of people and they want to learn to meditate primarily because they're stressed and they want to be able to organize their time better, and if they practice it, and they will practice it variably, of course, like all of us, some the ex-Marines among them will 
meditate with great discipline and the, the rest will be like most of us, rather undisciplined. And yet, over a period of time, and that suggests why it's important to have some structures or some, some uh, specified learning periods, like a six-week course we offer in the community, six-week introduction to meditation. It's quite useful to have that because it's easier for us to say, okay, I'll do it for these six weeks. And then we'll, we'll see. So we set, you know, ourselves more immediate goals. After that, we'll see. But most uh, people who make some serious effort to meditate during that period of time will discover a kind of experience that they didn't know before. And they won't really have words to describe it. And the very fact that they can't describe it is what makes it interesting and, uh, and life-changing for them. It is opening them to something that they did not know before. And then, as that experience enters into their memory and into their daily life, then it's inevitable that they will eventually, however busy or distracted they are, they will eventually begin to reflect on the meaning of that experience. Human beings can't just have fun uh, or can't just suffer. Uh, they, we have to search for the meaning. And meaning, the meaning of meaning is something that many people in our world <coughs> today have uh, lost the sense of. The very word meaning doesn't mean anything anymore. So, all that's necessary for this to begin to happen is that we are serious about it. When John Main was introduced to meditation by his teacher, <coughs> and he was attracted to what he felt this monk could teach him. And he asked him, could you teach me to meditate? And the monk said, well, of course, I could teach anyone to meditate. Uh, but I could only really do it if you're serious. So John Maine said, well, what do you mean by serious? And all he meant by serious was, do it. Just do it. Don't come and waste my time uh, and just talk about it. But if you do it, and try to do it twice a day, and John Main was a disciplined man, so he did it twice a day from day one, uh, and then you can come back and meditate with me once a week, and we will discuss any questions you may have. And... John Main had the same questions that we all have. What does this mean? And what uh, am I doing it right? And how long is it going to take? And all these sort of questions that we have to just face and then move beyond. So for us, it's important to be serious. 
not to be perfect, not to be the most disciplined meditator in the group, not to be competitive, but uh, to be serious means to make it part of your daily life. And that is an adventure. It's not an obligation. No one's forcing you. No one's forcing us to meditate. No one's saying you won't get any benefits unless you meditate. There are other ways of reducing your stress, other ways of improving your blood pressure, other ways of your dealing with your cholesterol. Just look at your diet and exercise and, and get enough sleep at night. That would probably make a big difference as well. So, but to be serious about meditation means that you have started a journey. It's like a journey you start with somebody that you may end up marrying. Or a journey such as you may lead some of the novices here in the monastery to make their final profession as a monk. Ultimately, what makes life serious is that we make lifelong commitments. And we may make mistakes, but nevertheless, we, we make, we grow into that capacity for lifelong commitments um, meaningfully. So meditation itself is probably best understood as a relationship or an experience of what it means to be in relationship rather than a technique you've got to master or a skill that, that you're going to become good at or perfect. Just think of it as a relationship that you feel drawn into. And as the relationship becomes more serious, you may well start to get a little bit nervous about it, as one does with serious relationships. But think of it as a journey then, not a, not, not a business trip, it's not a holiday, but it's more of a pilgrimage. Pilgrimages can be fun, pilgrimages are not just about sightseeing, they're not about staying in the best hotels or getting your money's worth. That's something that when people come to Monte Oliveto, Sometimes it takes them a day or two to realize it's not a hotel. It's better than a hotel. And it, meditation is a journey into silence. And we may be discovering silence for the first time, or probably not for the first time, but we're remembering it after a long time. And as soon as we begin to taste it, then we realize that it is work. And like work, we have to go to work every day, whether that is housework and working at creating a family and a home, or whether it is building a financial empire, or looking after your investments, or making tables and chairs. It's work. 
And when we go upstairs to the meditation room, we go to our chair or our cushion, we're going to a place of work. And that is our journey, a journey we make by being still. And although at first it seems like an inner journey, we quite quickly realize that the inner and the outer worlds are both changing. They're coming into greater harmony. And what we discover within becomes present to us in the external aspects of our lives, especially in our relationships. So we are beginning a, a lifelong journey in meditation grows into a, a lifelong commitment, not in the sense that you have to sign your life away, but in the sense that one day you realize it is part of my life. And my life would be incomplete without it. It's like the doctor who speaking to his colleagues once and he said, when I first began to meditate, he said the problem was doing it every day. And now the problem is if I don't do it. <laughs> so it becomes a journey, a life journey, into a new country, into a new way of being and a new way of living. And it never gets boring. Now, you may give up and go back, or you may, at times, try to rush ahead impatiently, see if I can speed this process up, or you may get discouraged and need a, a, a bit of a hug or a bit of a pat on the back. But eventually, you do realize that it is a long journey it's a long journey and it's, at the same time, the journey of a moment. It takes time. And this is where a new kind of self-knowledge and relationship with oneself begins to emerge. This is uh, one of the symptoms of this, one of the benefits of this, would be that you find that you are becoming less stressed. This is more of a side benefit than the actual, the actual goal that you're working towards, but it's, it's a good benefit. Set your troubled hearts at rest and banish your fears, the fears that you won't be able to get everything done, or the fears that you're going to fail, or the fear that uh, you may lose your job, or, the, or this fear or that fear. Now, we all have our, our moments... We have moments of success, moments of happiness, of greatness, of fulfillment. Maybe we don't want to be rich and famous, because that seems too much work. So we hang, you know, we sort of read about the rich and famous or watch lifestyles of the rich and famous on TV and read magazine stories about them and their marriages and their houses and their cars and 
their relationships or then we buy their relics, you know, um, Marilyn Monroe's dress that she wore in that famous photograph. How much did that sell for? Hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think. So, but uh, we may not want to be rich and famous. We may not want to be prime minister or president. Uh, but we may just want quiet, security, good health, interesting work, happy relationships, occasional trips, and a variety of food. Then we'll be happy. But whatever we want, we may find it intermittently. The World Health Organization definition of health is a fantasy. It says, it's, I forget the exact words now, a condition of complete physical and psychological well-being and complete freedom from any kind of illness or in infirmity. Well, good luck. <laughs> even when you have one of those periods of your life where everything is there, there's always something. So we discover, inevitably, that life is impermanent. One of the features of the understanding of reality uh, that the Buddha gives us that the nature of all things is impermanent. By impermanent, uh, and it, it is impermanent, and it is uh, interdependent. It's a pretty good definition of a creature, a biblical idea of a creature, of creation. It passes away, it's cyclical, it, it uh, begins, it flourishes, it declines, it dies, starts again, and, uh, and, it, and nothing is independent. So we discover the impermanence and the independence of reality, and that does not need to frighten us or to make us angry or bitter. It is, in fact, a blessing to discover that in meditation, the work of meditation introduces us to this truth of things, this truth of reality. If we accept impermanence and interdependence, we just have to accept it, because it's, it's what is there. If we accept it, then we find the first of the Beatitudes and we discover what poverty of spirit means. Our meditation is about finding this poverty of spirit. It's not about finding and keeping anything permanently, even God, or especially God. It's difficult for us, especially in our consumer world, consumer conditioning to think that we're not going to get something out of meditation that will make it worthwhile. 
And of course it's true, you don't do anything if it doesn't have some meaning. But it's the attitude that we bring to it. Are we doing it, this work of silence, in order to get something that we call an experience, or we get something that we feel we will have a right to possess? Once we've got it, we've always got it. It's that attitude that has to dissolve. And as it dissolves, so do many of those questions that Father John, like us, ask at the beginning. How long is this going to take? Am I doing it properly? And can I speed it up? We may also want to be better people. Hopefully we do want to be better people. We may want to be more peaceful, more other-centered, more compassionate, less judgmental, and less self-centered. We want to be better human beings. But then we discover that we have a divided will on many things. That we're not consistent. We are intermittently faithful. We have our moments of greatness, but most of the time we are very ordinary and even disappointingly trivial. Characters in novels or films are not like this. They're not like real people. That's why we like them so much. We can identify with characters in a film or a book and we aspire to be like them perhaps or we, in some way they, they inspire us. And their lives seem so much more uh, exciting than ours, so much more intense. Um, and if you saw the, the, the Bourne trilogy, three great, great, greatest action movies ever made. And uh, it, they are just brilliantly um, escapist. And he never has a dull moment in his life. He's climbing, out, he's climbing down buildings. He's getting out of cars which have gone over into the river. He's uh, escaping people who are trying to shoot him. Uh, every moment, or he's having a romantic moment, every single moment of, of, of his day is intensely alive. And he always survives. <laughs> and he never gets tired. And it's, uh, it's great fun. Um, he never makes a mistake. But you never see him do his laundry. <laughs> you never see him missing a plane and having to wait for three hours. You never see him cursing because he can't get connected to Wi-Fi. <laughs> so we seem to know these characters uh, in fiction better than we know ourselves even or better and in a way we do know them better than people in our real lives because we know what they're thinking and they're feeling and we know this with certain characters we know what are called flat characters we know what they're going to do they don't surprise us
it's what they call round characters are characters that will suddenly act out of character and surprise us, change. But anyway, especially with these flat characters like Jason Bourne, you know exactly what he's going to be like. And it's uh, attractive that you know, uh, you, you know them in this way. But we don't know real people like that. We may have flat characters and round characters in our personal lives, um, but we don't ever n really know what others are thinking and feeling from within, or very rarely. So if we aren't careful, we end up imitating characters in books and films, thinking we're like them. Many years ago, um, somebody came to our community. It was, I think, it's a long time ago, so I think he's probably moved on by now. Uh, and uh, he was a Merton lookalike. He, he loved Merton. He had re re read everything could be Merton, Thomas Merton had ever written. And um, was an expert on Merton. Then I realized he was looking like Merton. He wore the little hat that Merton liked as well. And um, there was a nurse staying in the community at that time. And quite predictably, like Merton, he fell in love with the nurse. <laughs> <laughs> so he was acting out this, uh, this identification with his favorite character. Uh, and you know, when the Matrix films were, were coming out, you would see people in, I don't know, walking down the street in Ealing, you know, wearing these long trench coats, like the characters, uh, the trench coats, you know, those long coats that, that they wore in the Matrix. Uh, uh, like children acting out fantasy roles. Um, so all of these, these, uh, these acting out patterns create noise. They're noisy. They're ego games that block out the silence of reality. They create a very noisy mind, unable and unwilling to listen to the sound of silence and to be real. And this is true even or especially for religious people who imitate their religious heroes. And that's the hard truth uh, for many religious people. And it's, it's a truth that I think uh, I've been rereading uh, uh, Sushaku Endo's uh, novel, uh, Silence, which has been made into a film, which I haven't seen <coughs> yet. But, um, and it's, uh, how many people have seen it, seen the film Silence? Oh, not many. 
and um, we will talk about it tonight. So it's about a. It was written in 1966, and Endo was a Japanese Christian writer and novelist who had uh, gone through something of the same kind of crisis that he describes in the novel uh, in post-war Japan, having seen the dropping of the atomic bomb and the total devastation, destruction of Japanese society. So the novel is about a a group of young, idealistic, 17th century Jesuit missionaries who want to go back to Japan, which had in the past welcomed uh, Christian missionaries and encouraged Christian conversions, uh, but had had a change of heart, a change of policy, and had now expelled the missionaries uh, violently and were now persecuting the, the whatever Christians were left. And the hero or the, or the, character, the main character in the novel is a young Portuguese uh, Jesuit called Father Rodriguez, Rod, Rod, Rodriguez. and uh, he wants to go to Japan uh, in order to find out if there's any truth in a terrible story that he has heard that his old teacher, a Jesuit called Father Ferreira, who had been in Japan and had disappeared. But there was a story, and they assumed that he had probably been martyred, but there was a story that he had actually apostatized. He had renounced his faith and... um, uh, this was shocking and terrifying to Rodriguez and the, his young J- Jesuit friends. <clears throat> and so they decide to, to go to Japan to discover the truth. Uh, 